Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I'm delighted to host Dr. Miriam Buck McKenna, associate professor at the Department of Social Sciences and Business at Roskilde University in Denmark. Dr. McKenna's research takes an interdisciplinary and socio-legal approach to law with a particular focus on international law, legal history, law and gender, law and political economy, and post-colonial legal theory. We will be discussing her captivating first monograph, Reckoning with Empire, Self-Determination in International Law, Hot Off Brill's Press. The book traces the ways in which various actors have sought to reinvent self-determination in different juridical, political, and economic iterations, to create the conditions for global transformation and to challenge exclusionary practices of Eurocentric world orders. Dr. McKenna, thank you for joining New Books Network and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that generous introduction. As is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write Reckoning with Empire? Yeah, well, um, so this started as my dissertation, um, which I wrote at the University of Copenhagen um, at the law faculty um, uh, several years ago. Um, And it was sort of, it emerged from my interest in this discussion that had begun at that point about um, the manners and, and ways in which international legal history had been written. Um, and this sort of growing critique um, of how how international lawyers use history um, and write history, um, and that, of course, being this tendency to have a quite positivistic um, approach and to follow many of the same um, uh, sort of uh, uh, focal points on um, hierarchies of uh, sources that follow the international legal um a positive approach. Um, so uh, the way that history is sort of used within this framework to sort of um, underpin certain legal and normative um, ideas um, has been uh, increasingly criticised. Um, and I uh, was really interested in these discussions and I thought that self-determination really epitomised this problem um, because I had... Uh, come to this area um, during my LLM studies, um, which I wrote about um, the uh, International Court of Justice advisory opinion on Kosovo. And I was just really interested in the incredibly varied approaches that states were taking um, in their submissions um, on self-determination. And I just didn't think that quite followed the history that I had been reading about self-determination, which is very singular and and very teleological. Um, It's 
uh, incredibly sort of um, consistent throughout all texts on self-determination. And I thought that was somehow just too narrow and, and too unnuanced. So what I was really interested in doing was revisiting this history through a different lens and a less positivistic um, lens. Um, and I was supervised by um, a sociologist, a legal sociologist, um, who you know was, was very worked with and was very informed by the work of Bourdieu. Um, so I decided to take this um, idea of self-determination um, and sort of open up um, the conception of what self-determination could mean in social law um, to be sort of a far more um, sort of socio-legal idea, um, one in which there have been various contestations and frictions over defining its meaning and um, and, and using it in different, uh, uh, to, to pursue different uh, ends. Um, so I was really interested in sort of playing with this idea of rewriting international legal history in a different way, in a much more socio-legal way, and using, drawing on a different variety of, of source material, um, and, and really trying to step outside of that classical approach to writing international legal history. Um, yeah, so that that's sort of where it started. And then, I mean, to be honest, I I finished in 2015 and I, I um, went on maternity leave and I put it on the shelf for a couple of years. I wasn't really that interested in pursuing um, the book. And, I, I, you know, through the years, several people who had been on my committee and um, had read the text, sort of were interested in why I hadn't published it. And so um, towards the end of uh, 2020, I decided, okay, this is the year I'm going <laughs> to finally put it out in the world. So, yeah, um, and in that in that sort of period, a lot of things had, had really changed, I think, um, and there's been this really wonderful and fruitful discussion that's gone on, particularly in international relations and political theory. And, of course, that I, I'm referring to Adam Gashtu's wonderful book, um, which looks at, um, you know, the, the use of self-determination, particularly by Pan-African um, legal activists or political activists. Um, and I, I just wanted to sort of, I, I, I guess I, this is kind of dovetailing with a lot of this work, um, but much more focused on um, this legal iteration. And so within legal institutions and settings, how has this um this idea, which um, is very um, am- amorphous and ambiguous, um, being used um, by different actors. Um, so the idea is to really get away from that linear, teleological, progressive narrative, which has tended to talk about self-determination as this sort of gradual unfolding of a you know liberal idea, um, which tends to start uh, you know during the Enlightenment period and then has sort of been you know, taken up um, at various junctures and then, of course, you know, becomes this right um, with, during the decolonization period. Um, and that's just really not what I was seeing when I was looking at a lot of the debates um, in uh, different legal fora um, and also in the writings of various academics. So I wanted to, yeah, to sort of revisit that that narrative um, and, and open up um to, to showing how self-determination is an incredibly interesting um, sort of a bit of a Pandora's box in the international legal system. Um, and that's also something that I guess international lawyers that sat not, like sort of awkwardly with international lawyers over the years because, you know, they tend to want to give it some sort of concrete 
definition. And so this is where the history has come in is that they've tended to, you know, struggle with defining it in a positivist sense. So they tend to turn to, you know, you know, different um, points where this is sort of maybe, um, you know, crystallised into certain um, legal uh, documents or, or frameworks. Um, but I think that misses a lot of of how um, uh, you know how politicised this idea has been and how radical an idea um, in the international legal order this idea actually is. Um, so. Yeah, I, I don't think it's. I don't think we give it enough credit for being this, you know, really, really interesting um, kind of legal phenomenon in in international law um, because it's sort of seen, I think, for a lot of people as a kind of, or a lot of lawyers at least, as this kind of annoying, <laughs> sort of undefinable principle which just kind of causes a lot of problems. Um, yeah. Now, you cannot see me, of course, but I was nodding vigorously throughout your, your initial response. And this perfectly anticipates my, my following question. Uh, would you elaborate on your approach to, to law and history? Uh, recently, there has emerged a, a debate about the benefits and pitfalls of the ways in which historians use the law and international lawyers use history mm. to narrate these transformations of global legal frameworks. How exactly does Reckoning with Empire respond to, to these dilemmas? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, it is trying to um, plug into some some big debates that have been going on, um, particularly amongst uh, critical international lawyers for several years now. Um, I think I, I adopt that same um, slightly um, wary stance on on writing history as a as a lawyer because I'm not a trained historian so um I'm very aware that I'm using history in a way that is very particular to my discipline um but also doing so in a way that tries to step away from the the ways in which international lawyers have tended to write history which is again that like extremely positivist focused um uh, you know, sort of fitting fitting an idea within a, a predefined narrative in a way or a predefined idea um, and sort of looking for the historical sources that kind of back that up, which is obviously really problematic um, for historians. And this is also why it's so incredible that so many um, trained historians um, and, and, you know, different kinds of people from, from different scholarly backgrounds have come to, to the writing of international history international legal history um because it really opens up um yeah this 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 um quite problematic um way of writing history um so i i guess i you know this is i guess quite an institutional history it's quite a macro history i'm looking at these kind of you know broader shifts um i wish i had been able to you know, do far more archival research and also look at a range of actors that fall outside of, you know, traditional institutional settings. Um, and had I had more time and sort of a bit more training, I m- would be able to do that. And I'm, you know, now slowly moving into, you know, doing more archival work um, in my newer projects. Um, but this, I guess, is a an attempt to yeah, utilise the same, at least normative in- underpinnings of this sort of turn to history um, of, you um, 
yeah, trying to open up the ways we think about history and also mm-hmm. kind of reflecting upon how history has been used in international law. And, and again, as I mentioned, I think that self-determination is such a prime example of how this history has really subsumed a lot of the more radical parts of the, the history of self-determination. Yeah. So you argued that self-determination highlights blind spots of international law and challenges the seeming permanency of discriminating and exclusionary practices. Would you please guide our listeners to your innovative or through your innovative theoretical and historical understanding of self-determination as a potent discursive means that continues to be mobilized in aid of various causes? Yeah, thank you. That was a great question. Um, so, yeah, so I guess my main um my main sort of argument through this book is is really to kind of um, to point to the way in which um, self determination, because of its very unique um, history in this broader sort of intellectual history, um, which I think resonates, you know, not just within sort of the liberal um, uh, sort of tradition, but is you know so um, you know sort of you know um, spread across different political. Uh, you know, cultures and ideas um, has created this um, sort of gap in the international um, legal order. Um, and because it is this sort of amorphous principle, it's this um, sort of open-ended idea which really lacks definition but has this kind of incredible purchase um, in um in sort of political theory, um, it's sort of created this like wedge in the international system, which has allowed people to pursue different um, p- pursue different sort of political ends um, and, and um, projects. Um, so I I start off, of course, in with with the project of decolonization, which I think when you when you when you read a lot of the classical um narratives of of self-determination um in international law um the way that self-determination was used during the decolonization period is either kind of seen as purely symbolic um and i point to um this claim made by by marty kreskinimi um in a text he wrote in the early 90s about national self-determination that it really wasn't you know that much of a, a strategic claim it was yeah purely symbolic um, or that it's sort of, yeah, seen as this um, harnessing of this idea, um, you know, that really stems from the Wilsonian idea of self-determination um, following World War I. Um, and I think both of those things are sort of inaccurate um, because it was far more of a claim to completely um, unpicking a lot of ideas of um, yeah, unequal um, hierarchies and, and unequal integration in the international order um, that exist at this point. And I think at that time as well, there was this incredible sense that there could be change um, um, pursued through international um, institutions and international law. Um, and there was this, at least what I'm seeing, this real, um, really strategic usage of the of, of the idea um, by different legal actors. And of course, it's pursued primarily through the setting of the human rights bodies um, during the negotiations of the, the two covenants. But I don't think it's purely a human rights claim that is being made here. It's a claim to, to you know, sovereignty um, and a certain kind of sovereignty um, 
that's made during this point um, in time. Um, and I think uh, sort of I, I go back through other periods as well to sort of um, to show that maybe these junctures that have been written about in um, in accounts of self-determination um, uh, have also maybe missed a little bit of the nuance in, in how self-determination has um, been circulated and used at this time. Um, so during the, um, the post-World War I or the interwar period, um, you know, there's, I guess, in a lot of the kind of classical narratives, there's this idea that this is the point in which you know, it's mobilised for political aims, but it sort of fails the test of, of kind of emerging from, from a political framework to a legal framework. Um, and actually what I want to show is that it it is actually, you know, incredibly um, legally important at this point. Um, you know, through the mandate system and through the minority protection schemes um, um, and through sort of early cases from, at the Permanent Court of International Justice where this idea is starting to really curtail um the, the, the boundaries of sovereignty and the boundaries of, of what states are eligible um, to, to pursue in terms of their national interests. Um, and then, of course, in the post, um, uh, not post-colonial period, but sort of the, you know, the 1970s, where the sort of height of decolonization has sort of petered out to some extent, um, you know, in, in classical narratives, that period is sort of, it's really missing. I mean, it was really strange that you would sort of read a text where it would sort of be like um, the interwar period, the, you know, decolonial period, and then it would suddenly pop up again in, in the 90s with the disintegration of the USSR. Um, and really it was actually circulating quite um quite prominently in the 1970s and 80s and, of course, in the 1970s with the new international economic order. But also the idea of self-determination, um, you know, and trying to get it back to what the a lot of the Western states believed was its kind of core ideals um, from the Wilsonian um, sort of political project um, really popped up in a lot of debates in the 1970s regarding human rights um, and it was this real shift during this period to try and, um, you know, get it back to this idea of, you know, democratic um, participation and, and human rights um, in that, you know, very classic liberal sense. Um, yeah. And, and as you mentioned, sort of it's still, I, I still think it has enormous purchase in the international system because it is, yeah, this open-ended amorphous idea um, even though it has been particularly in the nineties really sort of bound up in this, criticism of, you know, um, you know, unrelenting nationalism and, you know, Cassisi called it um, a golem turned on its creators. Like there was incredible negativity surrounding self-determination during this time. Um, and I think somehow that's somewhat sad that it's been um, demonised to the extent it has. I don't think the principle in itself is problematic or bad. Um, I think it's actually a really important um sort of gap in the international legal system that's otherwise quite monolithic um, and has allowed people to, to you know, pursue change um, uh, and, and, and really important change as well. And I think that's still happening, um, obviously, obviously, with, um, you know, the pursuit of Indigenous sovereignty through self-determination um, and that's still ongoing. But also I think what we're going to start seeing is a lot of these you know, idea these self-determination uh, sort of colonial claims that are, you know, seen as sort of settled and a done deal are probably going to be 
revisited. I think, um, as we saw with the Chagos Islands case, I think that's probably going to be a new trend is kind of going back and saying, well, hang on, you know, if we actually look at um, the sort of the period of decolonization and there was a lot of uncertainty about, you know, the point at which it crystallised and the point at which, you know, it what it was actually demanding of states, um, particularly in the 1950s, um, which is to this day still slightly unclear, and I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area, um, I think that's going to give rise to to more claims um, in the international legal system. Lovely. And, and the book's five chapters are chronologically ordered, and you start by diving into the Enlightenment roots of the concept, as it were, uh, briefly, where does self-determination come from as an international legal idea? Yeah, so um, so I guess I, I make, you know, part of this sort of intervention that I'm, you know, making that this, um, that self-determination has this conceptual ambiguity and that it's, you know, provided this platform um, to, to, to sort of, uh, to make challenge within the international legal system, I think comes from, you know, this particular um, sort of longer history, um, uh, which um, was very bound up in sort of two moves during the last, um, you know, two or three centuries, um, which is its kind of um, relationship to sovereignty and statehood, um, you know, and sort of ideas of popular sovereignty. Um, and then this, you know, obviously this this expansion of empire. Um, and I think those two things you know, go really, really hand in hand and, and haven't really been um, explored in self-determination's history because it's just, um, as I keep mentioning, it, it, you know, comes from this uh, or this the belief that it comes from this, you know, liberal idea in the Enlightenment and it's popular sovereignty and that that's sort of, you know, this progressive unfolding stems from this point and then is taken up again, um, you know, particularly during the 19th century, during um, the push towards, um, you know, national statehood, and, and again, um, you know, it peaks uh, to some extent during the interwar period. Um, so I think w- what I try to do in the sort of first chapter is to to sort of show how ideas of self-determination, um, you know, are sort of um, are, are far more embedded in, um, you know, ideas of sovereignty and statehood and, and empire um, that have previously been um, kind of seen. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and then I I sort of um, but, you know also point to you know the the early claims of self determination um, made um, not explicitly in the terms but sort of with you know tapping into this sort of um, sort of normative idea um, of popular sovereignty, particularly in um, uh, you know the um, South American you know, claims for for independence. Um, which uh, were made, um, you know, in in the mid-19th century. Uh, Chapter 2 takes us into the interwar period and stresses how self-determination became the fulcrum of varied attempts to redefine the perimeters of imperial war orders and expand the boundaries of international society. How did self-determination help re-envision sovereignty between the world wars? Yeah, so I think um, you know, in the in the nineteen twenties and thirties, in particular, you know, you're beginning to see this institutionalization and of international law, and you know, a lot of um, changes within ideas of sort of democratic practices and ideas. And what a lot of people have pointed to is self determination, you know, um, emerging um, at this time, 
um, in attempts by various actors to articulate a new vision of, of, of world relations. And of course, I'm pointing to work by um, Arez Manella, um, people like Natasha Wheatley, um, Glenda Slugger, Netta Crawford, um, in which the normative foundations of the state um, are sort of beginning to, to shift quite dramatically. Um, and I think these sort of early mobilizations of self-determination um, that are that are happening, you know, obviously are, you know, politically grounded, um, but they begin to, I think, open up to, um, you know, a, a, both a political and normative impetus for particularly the anti-colonial lobby to frame their own claims of self-determination. Of course, this is, you know, through, um, you know, a, a political um, project. But I think what's absent from a lot of the accounts of this period is that self-determination um, is also really emerging as a important sort of legal principle. Um, and that this sort of um, crystallization of self-determination as a kind of, you know, legal ideal is also presenting the possibility for these same groups to pursue sort of a legal project um, to, to claim independence. Um, and I think in a lot of accounts of self-determination, you tend to, this period just tends to be seen as, you know, it's a political, um, uh, what's a, a, a period of political mobilization, of course, by um, Vladimir Lenin and, um, and, uh, and Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, presenting two particular forms of self-determination. Um, but that it sort of fails uh, to make this, you know, jump um, because it fails to to sort of emerge um, within the League of Nations covenant um, as emerging from politics to law. But what I think that kind of misses is that through particular um, legal institutional arrangements at this time, and particularly the minority protection regime and the mandate system, there is this emergence of self-determination as a legal idea, um, as something that can discipline sovereignty um, and can discipline um, certain kinds of state action. Um, and so within this, I think this crucial legal space begins to emerge um, in which domestic political structures and state action are subject to international oversight, um, at least in theory, um, and that there's this new sort of internal expectation of the juridical state that is, is being pursued through these, um, through these regimes. And so I think that it's really here that you begin to see this crucial legal space for marginalised groups um, who've been kept outside of international law emerging. Um, and, and that this, I think, is um, really the origins of where um, the post-war uh, decolonization move through the UN actually you know, begins. Um, so that's sort of what I try to point to um, uh, in this in this chapter. Um, and, and, of course, I build a, a lot upon the work of, of people like Nathaniel Berman and also Karen Knopp, um, uh, who um, have spent a lot of um, uh, time in, in their work or many years in their work sort of exploring, um, you know, how these periods um, in self-determination history have, have tended to be sort of erased from those um, grand narratives of self-determination that we tend to to see in international law. Chapters three and four then focus on self-determination as a revolutionary framework and the key battleground for struggles over hierarchies of sovereignty and international law. 
you show there how diverse groups of anti-colonial actors and activists from the global south wielded self-determination to challenge the existing normative and legal structures, which had rendered them unequal. How is your retelling of the story of decolonization different from other historical and theoretical accounts? And I know we've already touched on this. Hmm. Maybe you can use a few examples from the text to illustrate the novelty of, of, of your argument. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, yeah, and of course, this is, this is a period that has <laughs> received a lot of attention um, in uh, both international legal accounts um, and, and also in sort of political theory and IR history. Um, and there are different, I think there's a lot of different um, takes on, on what actually happened during this time. Um, obviously, there are, I, th- I think the, the big sort of debate has been whether or not um, you know, self-determination and, and human rights were sort of, you know, one sort of overlapping or sort of integrated project or two distinct projects. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, Samuel Moyne has has characterised this this period as sort of tending to, to be sort of two different projects where, um, you know, people like Christian Roy Smith are, are sort of pointing to the integration of, of self-determination within the human rights um, for and I can't, I tend to agree with the latter, um, but I don't think it is as simple as simply a human rights um, claim. I think what is what is what tend, what happened during this time is, of course, these human rights for and these sort of emerging frameworks of human rights provide this backdrop um, through which these these states are beginning to launch the claim to self-determination, which they, you know, frame in the language of rights, the right to self-determination. But that's not really all they're doing at this at this time, that it's um, far more about challenging ideas of sovereignty and statehood through this um, through this approach. Um, and, I, and I mentioned uh, Marty Kostinemi's claim, um, you know, that it is this sort of symbolic framework of action. Um, and he also, you know, he also posits that decolonization was not accompanied by a challenge to statehood. And I just don't quite agree with that. And I think, you know, um, Adam Getachew's work as well um, has pointed to, to the fact that it was actually, you know, a whole scale mobilization of self-determination to sort of change existing modes of sovereign authority, um, you know, and, and, and move away from this, like, this exclusion of non-European peoples as unfit um, for sovereign rule. Um, so it, it's far it's far less symbolic and far more strategic um, uh, in this in this uh, in this period, um, and that's why I think I point to that it's also you know self determination is accompanied by you know these demands for non intervention and economic self determination at this time as well, um, and this is sort of trying to recalibrate you know sovereign expectations um, and trying to rebalance the international system through self-determination. So it's not just about independence, it's about, you know, completely changing what rights and duties they can expect um, in the international legal system. Um, so, yes, and I think then this becomes, you know, the the, the point at which, you know, these, these sort of um, claims that are made during the 1970s in the new international, international, international economic order um, are sort of um, are, are originating. So, and and I think at this time as well, um, you know, things like um, the Goa dispute that happens in 1962, I think, is a really 
prime example of what particular actors are seeing self-determination's normative and, and legal implications to be at this point. Um, and, you know, at this, at this time with this dispute, um, you know, the Indian delegates before the General Assembly are really pointing to the fact that self-determination has initiated, you know, a change to international law. It's, it's changed um, its, uh, its meaning, its structure, um, that, that, you know, they're pointing to the fact that, yes, international law has been this sort of Western um, sort of uh, development, but now it's being um, sort of harnessed by, by states that have formally been excluded from its ambits and they're beginning a new project. And I think that really comes out in the debates um, surrounding Goa um, at this period. Um so, and I think this also points to the fact that this is a really interesting juncture in the potential for international law. Um, and during the 1950s and 60s, there's far more, um, I think, positivity around what international law can, can mean for, um, for particularly colonial peoples. And it can be this platform to launch, um, you know, this, these, these political projects for change. Um, so at least in, in a lot of the debates that come out, there is this, you know, this sense of, um, yeah, like incredible radical aspiration for a new new world. Um, and that this is always countered in these in these um, in these debates by the Western states sort of pointing to, you know, trying to reform colonialism and trying to, you know, pursue this idea that self that um colonialism wasn't that bad or you know was you know it could be seen as a positive development and and that's really shot down um you know particularly during the colonial um uh declaration um debates um you know quite prominently um yeah and of course then this is this is sort of countenanced by the need to um sort of reduce the possibility of, of continuing conflict through the, the application of the utipositasis principle um, uh, and, and this kind of tension that arises, um, I think, really com- culminates in the Biafra conflict um, in the 1970s and or the beginning of the 1970s. And, and it begins to, I think, the problems with approaching self-determination through this kind of open-ended means become more more prominent um, at this point. Um, but that doesn't stop, I think, these actors from trying to pursue self-determination's um, redefinition um, and, and use in new, um, to pursue new political and economic projects. And, of course, I'm pointing to the new international economic order. Um, and that, that this is also going hand-in-hand hand with this this pursuit of, um, you know, grounding non-interference and, um, you know, sort of uh, new forms of um, uh, kind of sovereignty during this time as well. Um, So that I think that's also kind of absent um, from a lot of the discussions of um, self-determination is that this is, continues to be circulated um, by, uh, former colonial states, um, you know, throughout the 1970s, um, you know, to, to reframe this um, this international system, you know, to, in their interests. Um, 
And this then is countered, as I mentioned, by um, particularly Western states who are trying to pursue this new human rights regime, um, you know, and, and to push back what they're considering to be, you know, negative sovereignty um, you know, so so now trying to you know get back get back to this idea of self determination that you know comes from this liberal tradition, um, you know that that guarantees sovereign or civic participation and you know d- democracy and human rights, um, and this you know crops up again and again in you know submissions by Western states to the Human Rights um, Committee and in discussions of of different human rights. Um, documents throughout the 70s and 80s. Finally, chapter five brings us to the end of history, as it were. You contend that self-determination has remained a crucial discursive means of resistance in these ever-changing 21st century um, confines of international relations. How has the concept been used in in continued legal battles over the meaning of sovereignty, political legitimacy, and, and good governance? Yeah, and, that, and and I think what you really see in the 19, 1990s is that um, the ramping up of, of the project towards integrating self-determination and human rights um, and this emergence of this internal self-determination as trying mm-hmm. to, I suppose, rebalance the problematic tendencies of external self-determination. Um, and this really comes to the fore with you know, the discussions around the Quebec secession movement, um, you know, the, the breakup of Yugoslavia, that somehow, yeah, sort of um, sort of curbing the, the explosive tendencies of self-determination um, through human rights, through democratic um, um, ideals is this kind of inoculation um, for, the, for the problems of self-determination. Um, so it is very much, I think, Um, now associated with this idea of, of self-determination. And, of course, that's, you know, also given rise to, to certain other um, political projects um, uh, through, for example, Indigenous sovereignty and I suppose also a, a kind of um, expansion of minority rights through the idea of self-determination, you know, as sort of demanding a kind of a, an alternate form of sovereignty, Um to to counteract you know what is um you know kind of a, a form of sovereignty that's unable to really balance all these different sub-state interests um into the to the sub the 21st century um and yeah and I think that's what for a lot of international lawyers the story has sort of ended at that point um, that it's um you know now really only about internal sovereignty sorry, internal self-determination, um, and that, you know, it's going to be nigh on impossible now to really redraw borders or, um, uh, you know, change, um, you know, states, uh, state constellations to any degree. And I think if you look at the sort of the discourse around Kosovo as being the sui generis situation and this, you know, um, kind of... um, you know, strange, problematic emergence that's sort of necessary to to sort of um, back up this um, claim for human rights, you know, self-determination and and internal self-determination. They sort of, you know, particularly Western states have to pursue the the right of Kosovo to secede because they, you know, they have to sort of put them, 
money where their mouth is, you know, if they're pursuing this idea of, um, you know, uh, demands on states to to guarantee certain rights and when this fails, you know, they, they sort of, um, you know, yeah, are, are kind of forced into a corner to some extent. But I think, you know, the, the idea that this has sort of resolved the problems of self-determination or, you know, um, now we're sort of at a point where it's more clarified or well-defined, I think is um, not really the case. Um, and and I, I end the book by talking about the Chagos Islands case, um, which, yeah, is going back to, um, you know, what happened with the independence of uh, Mauritius in, in 1960 and pointing to all these irregularities. And, um, yeah, I think this is going to, to continue to be um, um, a topic for debate and discussion um, for, the, for the coming decades. So self-determination stays with us in all its oh, absolutely. destructive and constructive might. Yeah, I mean, of yeah. course, you can point to what's been happening with the, the Russian claims in Ukraine, yeah. which yes. is obviously a prime example of yeah. how this, this discourse of self-determination continues to be to be pursued, um, you know, and they point to what they see as the kind of hypocrisy of the West in regard to to Kosovo. Um, so I think this this is absolutely not <laughs> like it's not being put to bed by any um, stretch of the imagination whatsoever. And where has this project taken you, Dr. McKenna? What are you currently working on? Yeah, so I I guess I, you know really had thought like this is this is my sort of swan song when it comes to self-determination um but to be honest I am really interested in um particularly this this period in the 1950s and I think looking back at um some of the kind of um uh decolonization processes that yeah were maybe problematic or you know actually not carried out to their fullest and what I've been thinking a lot about is is the case of Greenland, um, where, you know, because I'm, obviously I'm, I'm living and working in Denmark, um, I think this, I think Greenland's um, integration into Denmark, um, you know, was a kind of a, a, you know, in the 1950s was kind of a case of how, you know, the political will of states was able to kind of maybe manipulate the decolonization process to, to their um, to their interests, um, and I'm you know there is now such a such a um, you know strong claim for decolonization that's it's emerging in in Greenland, and I'm really wondering if we shouldn't go back to what happened in in the um, the period at which Greenland was integrated into Denmark, and you know revisit the fact that no plebiscite was was held, that, you know, the process was, you know, there was um, incorrect information that was given to, to the UN by the Danish state that, you know, one of, um, one of Denmark's sort of leading international lawyers, Alf Ross, you know, had written a memo to the Danish government saying this is not kosher, um, but that that was dismissed. And I wonder if there is a, also a, you know, maybe a reason to go back and have a look at this period and have a look in the archive. So that's what I'm thinking that I want to do, um, what I'm working on at the moment. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Dr. McKenna, it has been a pleasure hosting you. Thank you for coming on uh, to talk to us about your fascinating work.
Well, thank you very much for having me and letting me talk to you about my, um, yeah, my, my book. That has been, it's been a pleasure.